If you have your Bible with you, open up to Exodus chapter 7. This morning we're going to be in the first paragraph in, uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And just to give you a heads up for next week, we're going to do sort of a, uh, a flyby or an overview of the plagues that we have up to the last plague, so the, the first nine. So my encouragement to you would be, uh, if you have been reading along with us in Exodus and maybe even trying to read ahead, if you want to pick up at 7-8 and read all the way to chapter 11 for next week, that would probably be very helpful and edifying for you. Uh, we won't obviously read that entire passage when we gather together next week, uh, so you can rest easy there. But uh, if you ha already have some sort of familiarity with it, it'll help you when we make some, uh, some points or some observations about what's happening in that particular passage of Scripture. In the meantime, for this morning, we're in the first seven verses of chapter 7. And before I read, remember where we are in the storyline in chapter 5, Moses goes boldly into Pharaoh, has his first audience with him, and as a bold prophet declares, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And with that thundering command, Pharaoh looks him in the face and says, no. And Moses is not prepared for that. And the people are not prepared for what comes next when he makes their life more miserable than what it had been even to that point. At two places in chapter 6, as Moses is wrestling with this shock and surprise that Pharaoh would actually not be so keen to let the Israelites go, when the Lord is telling him that he's going to go back to Pharaoh and speak again or speak some more, Two different times, Moses asked the question, how is it that Pharaoh will listen to me since I'm a man of unskilled speech? He feels in his rejection, when Pharaoh rejected the word of the Lord that he delivered, he felt a certain amount of pressure or reflection on him personally, which is a very human thing to do. When people don't respond to the word of the Lord, we think that we must have done it wrong or that we didn't speak it clearly enough. And this is, in part, part of God's response to Moses' struggle, but then also a preview of what's to come. So start with me, actually, so that we get the feel of it in Exodus 6.30. And then we'll read on into chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You will speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron will speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. 
So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So much for retirement. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. If you would, bow with me one more time in prayer before we think and meditate further. Father, as we see here in this brief but dense paragraph, the display of your power proclaimed and announced before you actually begin to execute your plan. We ask that you would give us the ability to consider that all that you have announced concerning your mighty acts that you have done through Christ and that you will do in his return are given to us so that we can be encouraged and be emboldened as we serve in the midst of a very hostile environment with people who are hostile to our message. Thank you, Father, that the battle belongs to the Lord and not to us. We thank you for our crucified and risen Savior, and we thank you for the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit in our midst, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So Exodus 7, 1 through 7, most of the time when you read this passage, because of the fact that there's a statement in here about the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, that's what receives most of the attention, and we're going to give attention to that. We're going to talk about what's going on with this heart hardening that the Lord does, uh, but if all that we do is, is consider that sort of provocative or curious statement, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, we miss the bigger picture of what God is doing. And in fact, I think one of the reasons that we have a passage like this is that the more that we sort of dig in and read and, and reflect and turn to the New Testament, right, because the Old Testament gives us shadows that cast us forward to the New Testament, we see that, that what we're encountering here in chapter 7, once again, is something of a paradigm for things that we see happening in the New Testament later on. At the, the heart of this paragraph, and of course much of, of Exodus, but in this paragraph in particular... What seems to be the main idea that's being communicated or uh, is being taught as we read it that we want to take note of, that we want to take, take to heart, is that the Lord makes himself known by the power of his salvation. That's what's going on in this paragraph. The Lord is announcing to Moses ahead of time the way that he will show himself, the way that he will make himself known to his people and even to his enemies by a dramatic display of his power that results in the salvation and deliverance of his people. So we're going to try as best we can to walk through this paragraph by three steps. Number one, we want to take note of the fact that the Lord confronts his opposition through his servant. The Lord confronts his opposition through his servant. Number two, that the Lord's salvation is secured, or is accomplished, you might say, in a hostile environment against a hardened opponent. The Lord's salvation is accomplished in a hostile environment against a hardened opponent. And number three, ultimately where all this is going, is that the Lord will be known as a God who saves his people. The Lord is most clearly revealed 
to the nations of the earth as a covenant-keeping God who redeems his people in salvation. So, number one, the Lord confronts his opposition through his servant. This first statement that's made in verse 1 is very bold, it's very provocative, and if it weren't for the fact that God himself said it, we would even say it borders on heresy to say to Moses, I make you God to Pharaoh. That's dramatic. There are two things, I think, going on here. One that concerns, perhaps, that shades a little bit more towards something that Moses needs to take to heart, and then maybe a a second aspect of this statement that deals a little bit more with Pharaoh, although Pharaoh is not in on this conversation. He doesn't hear any of what the Lord is saying to Moses. So the Lord, in response to Moses' insecurity his sense of failure and and inadequacy to get a right response from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's never going to listen to me. I'm just not a good enough speaker. I'm not persuasive enough. The Lord's response to that is, I make you God to Pharaoh. I make you God to Pharaoh. The, The phrasing that's used here actually has the idea of God make or God making Moses God to Pharaoh in the sense of setting him up or appointing him, giving him to Pharaoh as God. The point being that what God is making clear to Moses right out of the gate in yet another response that should bolster Moses' confidence is that Moses, you are not here because this was your idea You're not here because you took this assignment on yourself according to your own whim. You're here and you will be there confronting Pharaoh because I put you there. I appointed you to be a spokesman. I appointed you and gave you to be a witness to bring my word to the king. If that's the case... If this whole work that Moses is involved in, that Moses has been called to, is ultimately, at root, God's work, it really makes no difference whether Moses feels like he's up to the task or not. God put him there. It makes absolutely no difference if Moses feels like or believes that he is an eloquent speaker or not. In fact, as you continue to go through the Exodus account and all through the wilderness wanderings, there's no indication that Moses ever changes in any sort of dramatic way in terms of his natural skills or ability. It's not that Moses starts off as a very awkward public speaker and then turns into some sort of golden-tongued orator. He is what he is with all of his weaknesses and all of his inadequacies. Doesn't matter. It's not about Moses. It's not the message that Moses brings. It's the message that God brings. And as such, then, that turns us to the other side of this, which 
one from Moses ought to be a recognition or a realization, a reminder at the very least, that he is not where he is because he appointed himself, but because God appointed him to this task. Therefore, God is the one who is responsible for seeing it through. But because he has been divinely appointed, that means that when Moses goes to confront Pharaoh, whether Pharaoh realizes it or not, Pharaoh is not hearing the voice of Moses. He's hearing the voice of God. This really gets to the root of it. The question is, when Moses enters into the throne room and begins to say, thus says the Lord, will Pharaoh hear with natural ears nothing more than the voice of a man, or with spiritual ears and sensitivities, will this message resonate with him as the voice of God? And because Moses is being sent to Pharaoh to act and to speak as God's representative in God's place, that means that whatever Pharaoh does to Moses, whether he knows it or not, he's doing to God. If he rejects Moses, he's not rejecting Moses. He's rejecting God. If he doesn't listen to the word, if he doesn't obey the command that Moses gives him, he's not turning a deaf ear to Moses, he's not disobeying Moses, he's turning a deaf ear to God. He is disobeying God. Moses comes to stand in as God to Pharaoh. That adds significant weight to what Moses is going to say. Pharaoh ought to listen to what Moses says, and he ought to respond accordingly. But let me ask you this. As heavy and weighty as this statement is, I make you God to Pharaoh so that when you speak, he is hearing God's voice speaking to him. What if... For as serious as what this is, what if later down the road God sent not just someone to stand in as God, but sent God himself? You understand, this is the dramatic build-up to what we see in the incarnation of Christ. When God the Son takes on human flesh and comes and enters into this world as a servant of the Lord... On the one hand, we are seeing once again that the Lord gives a servant to speak His word to His people and even to speak His word to people who will not receive it. But in the case of Jesus Christ, it's not someone who stands in to represent God. It is God Himself. Is that how you hear the voice of Jesus? When you read, when you see what Jesus says, when you see what Jesus does, when you hear what the apostles taught about the significance of what Christ said, are you thinking, this is God speaking to me and speaking to his people through the person of Jesus Christ? Do you consider the fact 
that to disregard the voice of Jesus is to disregard God. That to think that you can choose what you will obey and what you won't obey is to say to God, I will determine what I will obey and what I will not obey in what you command. Do you think about Jesus, the servant of God, in that way? Because what we're seeing here is just a glimpse and a glimmer of the realities that happen in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 12, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Do you hear that? The Father, God, sent me, and He gave me a message. Therefore, Jesus will say, If you do not listen to my words, you're not listening to the Word of God. But then it comes full circle because Jesus will later say in John chapter 17, as he's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross to suffer and die and be raised again, he says, speaking of his disciples and disciples who would come, he says, I have given them your word. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Ultimately, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this shadowy figure that we see with Moses, the one who goes bringing the very Word of God to call people to submit and obey. But Jesus says, upon my exaltation and my going back to the Father, I then send my followers to do that same thing. That means that when you read Exodus 7, which is fulfilled by Christ, and you consider that Christ himself makes an application of being sent and speaking to his people, you ought to consider the role that you play as a servant of God in delivering his message to hostile hearers. To the extent that we as God's people go as servants to bring and to deliver God's Word to people, receptive or not, we need to understand that because this is God's Word that is being given, it is God that they are being confronted with. If they reject me, if they reject you, if they don't like what we have to say, it's not because of us. They don't want God. No one is adequate to do what Moses was called to do. No one is adequate to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Paul himself gives acknowledgement to that in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the fact that we have been called as ambassadors to this new ministry of the new covenant. 
And he says, who is adequate for these things? 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Sons and daughters of God, it may be that one of the reasons that we are not more forthcoming, that we are not more transparent and clear in our spoken word, is because like Moses, we so easily take our eyes off of the Lord and put it on ourselves, thinking that we're the ones who are responsible for seeing to it that the word of the Lord bears fruit. And it has never been that way. The Lord calls his people to be his witnesses, to speak clearly and confidently what the Lord has said. And then the Lord has to do the work, one way or the other, in making that word stick. It does not depend upon you. You don't have to worry about whether or not you have the right technique. You don't have to worry about whether or not you have the right flair or the right turn of phrase. You don't have to be cute. You don't have to be fancy. You don't have to be sophisticated. All you need to do is deliver the Word of God. So as Moses comes to Pharaoh, whether Pharaoh realizes it or not, and he won't, his ears will be deaf, his eyes will be blind, his heart, as we'll see here in a moment, will be hard. Moses comes and brings God's word to Pharaoh so that the confrontation and the conflict is not Pharaoh versus Moses, but Pharaoh versus God. Number two, the Lord's salvation is secured in a hostile environment against a hardened opponent. One of the things that is very easy to miss once again, is the repetition that occurs in this little paragraph. Look at how many times in the span of just three verses you have a mention of the land or of Egypt. So in verse 2, you're going to go and you're going to speak. Aaron is going to speak as well. That he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Look at verse 3. I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Verse 4, when Pharaoh doesn't listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will bring out my host from the land of Egypt. Verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out my sons from their midst. Why, why the repetition? Okay, we get it. It's, you're going to do this in Egypt. Why, why repeat it four or five different times? Here's what I think is going on. I don't think that what the Lord is doing is trying to provide a geography lesson or give coordinates on a map for where this is going to happen. That's not the ultimate point. The land or Egypt, is not being referenced first and foremost as a location, but as a dominion, as a sphere of influence. In other words, 
When the Lord moves to rescue and redeem His people, He is going into a realm that is ordered against Him and His people. Everything in Egyptian culture and society, everything in their way of thinking is stacked against God's people not to let them go, not to respond to the Lord. In other words, the Lord is stressing the fact that I go to save my people by invading enemy territory. They don't come to me. I don't ask them to meet me halfway. I go in and get them. Once again, people, this is exactly, exactly what we see in the Gospel of John. Listen, understand, when you have in the Gospel of John all these statements about Jesus being sent to the world, sometimes John uses that term world in reference to just the number of people or physical earth. But the majority of times that the term world shows up in John's Gospel is not because John is wanting to say something about how big the world is, but how bad the world is. Therefore, when the Father sends the Son into the world, what we are meant to hear is that the Father sends the Rescuer into hostile territory to redeem and rescue His people. This should be encouraging to you. This should thrill us, because it means that if God is able to save His people wherever they are, and no matter what the scenario or the environment is in which they find themselves, there is no place and no time where God is not able to do that even today. Parents, some of you grieve over where your children are. Because they are walking in darkness, they seem to be bound and held by the philosophies of this age, by the spirit of this age, and it looks totally hopeless. How are you going to pray for your children? Are you going to pray, meet them halfway? Or are you going to cry out, God save them? Invade that darkness. Invade their hearts. Deliver them from the hold and the bonds that are on them in a way that only you can. Some of you are here and you wrestle with perhaps an unbelieving spouse or maybe not an unbelieving spouse maybe a spiritually dull spouse how do you pray what do you look for are you hoping 
that your word to your wife or to your husband is what's going to solve their spiritual condition? Or is your confidence in the fact that the God who raids Egypt and who invades earth itself is able to save your spouse out of their darkness of heart? But even more than that, this is where I think the statement about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart comes in. Moses will go and speak to Pharaoh to say, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh doesn't want anything to do with it. He won't have it. And the Lord actually says, rather than change Pharaoh, I'm actually going to make him harder. That's not the way that anyone tries to win an argument. You ever get in an argument with someone? The object is to gradually win them over to your side, not to make them more resistant to your point of view. The Lord says, I'm going to harden him. Keep in mind here that when the Lord says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, he is not talking about the fact that he's going to take someone who has a neutral heart and he's going to make it hard. Pharaoh already has a hard heart. Remember chapter 5, Moses goes in, thus says the Lord, let my people go. What is the response, the humble, docile response from Pharaoh? Who's Yahweh? I don't know him. And besides, I'm not going to let the people go. That's a hard heart that hears the voice of God and says, I'm not going to do it. What God actually does in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that he gives to Pharaoh what Pharaoh already has, or he gives him more of it, if we can say it that way. Pharaoh's heart is strong and resistant to the word of the Lord. And so the Lord says, I tell you what, let me give you even more strength and even more resistance to my word. Why would he do that? Why? It's in the text. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. The more that Pharaoh resists, the harder that Pharaoh comes against the Lord and against his word, the bigger God looks when he defeats him. The more Pharaoh tries to raise himself up 
over God, the higher God goes, so that at the end of the day, the only one who is promoted and exalted on high is the God who is able to conquer any rival to his authority and his plans for his people. Listen, Christian, that means that if the hardness of Pharaoh's heart resulted in a greater display of God's glory working for his people, that idea, that principle carries through to this very day. Any hardened opposition or resistance or persecution to God's people Though it may look like it is immovable and unconquerable, will ultimately, one day, according to God's plan, only make God's salvation look all the more brilliant and magnificent. We are surrounded in this broken, cursed age. We're surrounded by death. by disease, by sickness. And none of us can get away from it. None of us. All of that, all of the sickness, all of the illness, all of the death, all of the sorrow, all of the misery, all of those things that run against the will of God, that would seem to thwart His good plans for His people, will one day, at the end merely be the platform on which God displays his power and his glory. He will conquer death. He will destroy sin. There will be no more sorrow or suffering or pain. All of these things that are arrayed against us cannot stop God from doing what He has determined He will do for His people. Your salvation, your glorification, your sight of God's power is as safe and secure for you going into the future as it was for Israel in Exodus chapter 7. God says, I'm going to deliver my people from Pharaoh out of the dominion of a slave land, and he does it. And he does that so that we now in this present time can say, if he has once again promised salvation and deliverance from this land of death and slavery, this dominion of darkness, if he has promised that through his servant Jesus, we know it will happen and no one will be able to resist it. Hold your place here. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, look at verse 37. 
But though he, that is Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, what is Moses going to do to Pharaoh? What is he going to perform? Signs and wonders. Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Oh, well, I guess God failed. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And then notice verse 41, Isaiah, or John says, these things Isaiah spoke because he saw his glory. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, secures him in his rebellion and disobedience to God so that he can magnify his power and his deliverance. He does it again through the ministry of his servant Jesus, where he hardens the hearts of those who would resist him and who would rebel. So that in what looks like failure, Jesus going to the cross, John says, and Isaiah says, that was actually the greatest victory that God won in the midst of hardened hearts and a sin-sick world. Is there anything that God cannot do for you knowing that he can win this kind of victory? Number three, the Lord will be known as the God who saves his people. Look at verses four and five. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. For the sake of time, let, let me try to cut to the chase. That statement, in verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Keep your finger here and go back just another chapter over. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am Yahweh. Yahweh, your God. Do you hear that? God says that when I perform my signs and wonders to deliver my people, my people are going to know that I am the Lord their God, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God brings judgment to deliver his people, 
But as we'll see later, as an act of extended grace and mercy, anyone who sees the work of God can know that this is the hand of God at work and can turn and respond to find life. They don't have to find death. The question is, whereas the Israelites will know Yahweh as their God, and the Egyptians will know that he is I am, will the Egyptians come to know that he is their God too? If you're here this morning and you do not know that the Lord is your God, this same stark contrast stands for you. At some point in time, it may be now, the Lord may be working on your heart now as you hear this message, as you read these verses. At some point in time, you may come to see and know and recognize that the Lord is God. I pray that that's today if you haven't recognized it already and that you would respond accordingly. But hear me on this. There is coming a time where even the most hardened, unwilling hearts will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if he is not your God, you will only know him in judgment for your rebellion, not in reward for his salvation. And you have the opportunity today to know for certain ahead of that last final day that the Lord is your God for your salvation, not for your judgment. It's in that vein or it's in that light that we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, look at verses 25 and 26. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen, people, the, the, what we celebrate as sons and daughters of God is the realization that what we read about in Exodus chapter 7, that Pharaoh's hard heart was made all the more hard, is something that God would have been fully just and right to do even to us. That were we left to ourselves, seated in this room, are scores of little pharaohs who want to be the king of their own life and their domain and who would defy God to his face if he was content to leave them in their sin and rebellion. 
And in the same way that Pharaoh's heart was hard and made harder, in Ezekiel, the Lord says, I will take out the heart of stone. Stone hard or soft? Hard. I will take out your hard heart of stone and replace it with a soft heart of flesh. The wonder of God's grace and mercy is that although we went through life living and aspiring to be our own little self-made gods, rather than God allowing us to continue in our hardness of heart and hardening us even further, God in his mercy, sheer mercy, took a heart that was growing harder by the day and replaced it with something soft. That is a work that only God can do. That is a work that only God can do and no one can resist. So when we come to the table and when we celebrate what Christ has done to make that cleansing, to make that transformation possible by his death and resurrection, understand that participating in this meal, this symbolic meal together, is something that is reserved for those people who have been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is for people who have found life by feeding on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you do not have that new covenant heart of flesh that loves the Lord, that has been drawn to him, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, not as an act to try to shame or humiliate you, we would simply ask that you would let these plates pass by you, but that as it passed by you, that you would consider that although you have been kept out of this meal up to this very moment, that today you can be welcomed in as part of God's family and you can feast freely. Christians, for those of you who have known, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that he is strong in salvation, I would encourage you to reflect on the fact that you are here today because of the demonstration of God's power in your own life when he removed a heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Men, would you come down to help serve the elements? As the men come down, they will take the bread first to distribute that. If you would just hold that in your hand until we're all ready to partake together, and then after that we will pass through the cups.
in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we're told that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat, knowing that he gave himself for your redemption. Father, we thank you and praise you that in your love for your children, in faithfulness to your covenant promises, that you sent your son into a world that was hostile to you, that he took on our weakness and that in his death he provided full satisfaction and payment for sin so that we could be delivered from the dominion of darkness and be brought into your kingdom as sons and daughters. Amen. Men, if you would come up to distribute the cup.
Chapter 2 describes our bondage and slavery in terms as real as the bondage and slavery of Israel in Egypt. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Take and drink, realizing that in order to make his people alive, Jesus went to death. Father, we thank you for the gift, the sacrifice of your son that paid the ransom price for your children to be bought out of our bondage to slavery and sin. We thank you that we know that that sacrifice was accepted by the vindication of his resurrection and that because of his new life, we have the hope that one day we also will be raised to new spiritual life never to die or to suffer again. Help us, Father, to remember that you are the almighty, all-powerful God who saves his people no matter where they are, no matter what the opposition, and that you do it for the glory of your name so that we can rejoice and sing your praises. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand. from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You're dismissed.